follow with me in your copy of God's Word as I read these five verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Would you please bow with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we ask you, O oh Lord, to work within our hearts and our minds. Help us to understand, O oh Lord. Help us even more so, Father, to be changed by your power. Change our desires, O oh Lord. Direct our gaze towards you and your glory and what will one day be. Father, speak clearly to us. And give us ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In May of 2009, author and speaker Gordon MacDonald was invited to Nashville to speak. To spend a weekend at Mount Zion Baptist Church in Nashville. Now the week that he was invited to speak was the weekend that they recognized they're graduates. Now we do that once a year and it's, a, it's an exciting moment. But at Mount Zion is a huge moment. Because they recognize those that are making a big step forward. They start with the kindergartners. They recognize then their seniors that are graduating high school. Then they recognize their college graduates. And on this Sunday morning, the two-hour service recognized over 200 students. Each student would be called by name. They would make their way forward and have their picture made with the pastor. We may think about incorporating that because what student wouldn't like a picture made with their pastor to remember graduation? But as they would call the name, they would share something about where that student was going. They started with the kindergartners. This is James H. Brown graduating from kindergarten. He wants to be a police officer. This is Lisa T. Clark, graduating from kindergarten. She wants to be a surgeon. As the high schoolers came around, they did the same thing. They recognized either where this student was entering into the workplace or where they were going to college or trade school. And then with the college graduates and those going on to postgraduate work, they would recognize them for their intention to go into medicine, law, biology, theology, or music. I mean, Donald said an amazing thing happened. With each student, the congregation would applause. But it wasn't this lackluster, 
He said there was a crescendo that began to grow that by the time they got to the college graduates, they were hooping and hollering and Gordon McDonald said he got caught up in that. And he said, I didn't know a soul there. But he said, I was cheering and I was saying, you go. And then it dawned on him what was happening. He was witnessing the power of hope. He was witnessing what happens when you get caught up in the rush of people who believe that something better lies ahead. A group of people who realize that this world is not marked by the way things are now, but this world is defined by the way things will be. Tim Keller has written that what we believe about the future controls our experience of the present. What we believe about the future controls how we experience the present. Right now, we look around and there are many in our culture that are despairing of the future. They look around and they see waves of division caused by storms of strife and they wonder if the boat will capsize. But as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors of heaven, we are to remember that the troubles we face here and now are not the final chapter. The sounds of discord that we hear are not the final notes. The final note will be sounded by the trumpet of God. The final chapter has already been written by God himself. And in this chapter of Revelation, in the final chapter of Revelation, we get a glimpse of that finale. We get a glimpse, an even further glimpse, of the hope that is to come. And ironically and interestingly enough, it is a glimpse of a garden. You see, there's an interesting mixture that takes place at the conclusion of Revelation. In chapter 21, John sees the new Jerusalem, the city of God, coming down out of heaven. And it is a city that is defined by the people who dwell in it and their relationship with God. But now we find something different. As he's given a further vision of this city, this city is now defined as a garden. That is, if there is in this city this perfect mixture of people and presence, of, of city and garden. Now, I couldn't help but, but in my mind picture one of the great images, the iconic images of one of the great cities of our nation up on the screen. This is Central Park in New York City. This lush garden area of 843 acres smack in the middle of Manhattan. This picture of, of garden and city merging. As we look, we have to ask some questions. Why does this river picture so prominently in the city? Why? Why is there a description of the tree of life, or better, this, this life-giving tree on both sides of the river? And I think it's the tree of life that helps us to understand this. What is described in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, takes us back to the Garden of Eden, and it shows that what awaits us is a return to the garden, but the garden expanded, the garden bigger and larger and more glorious than we could imagine. When the Garden of Eden is described in Genesis chapter 2, it's described as having a river that flows from the center of it that branches into four different branches. A river flowing from the throne of God. 
We are told that in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life. What do we find here? We find not just one tree of life, but many that are alongside the river. You see, the picture of the Garden of Eden is summed up in its name, Eden. The name Eden literally means delightful. And no doubt the garden was beautiful. But that's not what made the Garden of Eden delightful. There's no doubt that in the garden every need was met. But that's not what makes it delightful. No doubt that in the Garden of Eden humanity and nature were living in perfect harmony together. But that's not what made the garden delightful. The garden was delightful because Adam and Eve walked in perfect fellowship with God. It was the unadulterated presence of God with His creation that made the garden delightful. But then, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. No longer could they walk in harmony with God. Death had destroyed what was delightful. No longer did they know the delight of pure fellowship with God. Therefore, they had to be removed from the garden. Now, Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 through 24 describes this. After Adam and Eve had fallen from state, sin has entered into the world, into them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now notice there's no ending punctuation there. It's as if God is saying the consequences of Adam and Eve eating of the tree of life and living eternally in a state of fallenness from God is too horrible to even speak. So because this danger of eating of the tree of life, he says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do you understand that removal from the garden was not just punishment? It was protection. To keep us from eating of the tree of life and living eternally. But understand that even though humanity was expelled from the garden, the garden did not go away. This picture of delight is found woven all throughout the tapestry of Scripture. When God gave instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle. He goes into great detail in Exodus about what it's to look like. And when you read it, you notice that God said, In the tent, in the, the fabric that will line the walls of the tabernacle, I want you to embroider trees, pomegranates, and cherubim. When the temple was built, the same instructions were given. Built into the walls of the temple, pictures of trees, pomegranates, palm trees, and cherubim. And in before the Holy of Holies, there was a candlestick that was made to look like a tree that was blossoming so that the limbs were holding the light. And it represents the tree of life. And we are told also in Hebrews 8.5 upon the screen, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All throughout the scripture is a taste of Eden to whet our appetite for what lies ahead. For Eden is where God dwelt 
fully with humanity. And when Christ returns and the new heaven and the new earth is created, it returns us to the garden in the full presence of God. The final note sounds and it is the sound of delight. The final chapter has been read and it's a return to walking in full fellowship with God. It's a return to the Garden of Eden, but now the garden's on steroids and it's bigger and better than we could ever imagine. And all throughout the scripture, it's bringing us to that reality. You see, the garden is full of the glory of God. And notice that this garden, this is the first point I want you to take away from this. This new creation is characterized by life. You'll see this upon the screen. It is characterized by life. Notice in verse 1, we are told that there is a river of the water of life. In verse 2, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, I think that those words could be better translated life-giving water, life-giving tree. And the focus of giving life is not just length of life. It's quality. It's the quality of the life that we will have. Not just that it is eternal, but that it is eternally filled with the presence of God. And therefore, as we understand this life, it is abundant life. Notice the primary characteristic of this river. In verse 1, it says it is bright as crystal. Bright points to purity. You can see through it. It is so pure, it's almost luminescent. And this water is pure because of the source from which it flows. It flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now you understand that it is pure from the source. And this is crucial because water is a necessary element for life. And if we imbibe in water that is polluted, we will become polluted. But now it is the water from the throne of God. It is the water that gives life, truly being alive. Not just eternal life, but an abundant life that grows and grows and grows. This is not the first place that water is mentioned flowing from the temple. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel has a vision of the temple of God. It's like a smaller model of what we read in Revelation 21. But what Ezekiel notices in this vision of a new temple is that water flows from the throne or from the Holy of Holies. As Ezekiel standing outside the Holy of Holies, he notices the water is ankle deep. Ezekiel then walks to the edge of the temple. Now the water's up to his knees. He walks out of the temple and across the temple courtyard and now the water's up to his waist. And the further he gets away from the source, the deeper the water is. And it's very curious because we would expect the opposite. The further you get away from the source, the more shallow the water should become. But God is showing us something here that no matter how far you are away from the throne of God, you are not so far away that the purity of His grace and Spirit cannot reach you. And that it is deep enough to cover the most deep part of our sinful hearts. It is deep enough to wash them clean because in Ezekiel's vision, everywhere the water from the throne touches, it makes whatever it touches clean. When the water from the throne touches a pond that is putrid with pollution, it turns that pond pure. When the water from the throne touches the sea, it makes that salty sea drinkable. And that is the power of God to transform our lives. 
It is the power of the grace of God to take our garbage and to make it beautiful. It is the power of God to remove death and destruction and to replace it with life and beauty. And this truth is emphasized by the tree of life. Notice how it's described in verse 2. It's got 12 kinds of fruit. It's perfect. The 12 representing completion. Notice where it is. It's on both sides of the river. It's accessible to all, to any who would come to God. He's saying it is accessible. And notice it gives its season, its fruit each month. This is not a tree that can be wiped away because of some frost. It's not a tree that is done in by saying, well, only once a year does it produce. It is a tree that produces continually. There's no growing seasons. There's no frost that can kill this life, no pest that can destroy it. And notice what this tree does. This is the second aspect of our life in this garden. The glory of the garden, it brings healing. Now notice in verse 2, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The word for healing here is therapia, therapy, mending what is broken. And notice for whom this healing is for. The nations. Now do not think of nations in terms of geopolitical entities marked by boundaries. This goes much further than that. The word for nations is the word ethnos, where we get ethnic. Different races, different nationalities. And what this is showing is that the healing that we are longing for, that is occurring in our culture between different peoples, is found at the throne of God. One look at our nation shows we need this healing. We are a divided people. A people divided by race and ideology. And church, this is where God has called us to minister most clearly the gospel. If we really believe the gospel, that it is one of reconciliation, and if we really believe that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, we are to be heralds of the message of gospel healing. And that healing is described here. Notice in front of God there is one people of God where people in heaven are not identified by their color, but by their Christ. We cannot be ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven if we harbor hate in our hearts. Those two cannot coexist. We cannot say we love God and then spew forth hate toward those that are different from us. Rather, as the church, we must take a stand against hate and that which divides us in the sin of racism because we recognize that white supremacy is a sin and as believers, the only supremacy we are to be concerned about is the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all of creation. That's what God has called us to be. We must show the world this healing. We are called to be ambassadors of this kingdom. Now, we can sit back and we can say, well, pastor, that's what it'll be one day, but that day ain't today. That is to misunderstand our calling to be light into the world. We are to be light into the world to show the radiance of God's glory. 
We are to give people a foretaste of what glory will be like so that they will desire to eat from this tree, so they will desire the water of life, so that they can see that what they are longing for is found in Jesus Christ, that their longing for peace is found in the Prince of Peace, that their longing for love is found in the Lord of Lords, that their longing for justice is found in the Righteous One of Israel, because only Jesus and His gospel can bring restoration this world is broken because of sin that's the root problem the hate that is around us all the isms of this world are rooted in sinful rebellion against God and the glory of this garden is that restoration occurs notice how it is described here in verse 3 no longer is there anything accursed there to be cursed is the opposite of blessed so if you're cursed, you're not going to experience the blessing of God. Now, hear me clearly. There are groups that will tell you the blessing of God is health and wealth. That's God's blessing. No, God's blessing is His presence. You see, we get so caught up. We read the glories of heaven and we think materialistically. Oh, we're going to have streets of gold. We're going to have pearly gates. God may even give me a golden Cadillac. When you are in the presence of God, you don't care what the street like you are standing on. When you're in the presence of God, material things fall into the shadows because you're in God's presence and God is enough. When we are in the presence of God, we are not going to be longing for material things. We're going to say, God, give me more of you. Give me more of you. And God, who is the eternal fountain of joy and love and happiness, will say, here I am. Enjoy more and more and more of my glory. That's the glory of heaven. And if we get caught up in all the other things, we have missed the point because the curse is gone. You know why that matters? I'm going to tell you why that matters. It matters because the presence of God cannot coexist fully in the presence of the curse. That's why that little adversity of conjunction, but, is found in verse 3. There's not anything there that's a curse, but the throne of God's there. God will not exist in the presence of that which he has cursed. So for God's presence to be there, the curse has to be removed that's why death will not have a place in the presence of God because death is part of the curse the curse is removed and we are fully in his presence and that's why part of the glory of the garden is this it is characterized by the excuse me the illuminated life of God look at verse 5 night will be no more they won't need light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. You ever notice nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night? Nothing good. One general rule, you don't need to be out after, after 11. I mean, think about it. All the things you hear on the news, how many of them are this person was arrested at 3 a.m.? You rarely hear, they were arrested at 11 o'clock this morning. Nothing good happens at night. And that's where Scripture takes that imagery. And it says, night comes to represent what, that which is evil and sinful. To dwell in darkness is to be immersed in evil. But in heaven, there is no night. There is no evil, only light. Now, light is the saving power of God. You see, when you read here and it says, there's no more moon, there's no more sun. God made the sun and the moon. Genesis 1, he says, they are good. I think this is saying that we're not going to be caught up in looking at those things for light because the saving power of God is light. 
His presence is light. His love is light. 1 Timothy 6, 16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. His presence, His love, His grace is a light so great it eclipses the sun itself. This is what we're longing for. Light. The warmth of God's love. Deep down, that's what we're hungering for. That's what our souls are thirsting for. That's the warmth we are longing for. Many years ago, our family had gone camping at Hungry Mother State Park. I, f I feel like every time we went camping, something happened. We found emergency rooms, all that stuff, and we were camping. Well, this time, we're camping in a tent at Hungry Mother, and a monsoon comes. I mean, water is flowing everywhere. So we did what every camper does when it starts to rain that hard. We got in the car to go somewhere to eat out. Right, drove into town. We came back. Everything's soaked. You're soaking and you're wet and you're chilling and you're camping. You need a fire. All right? I mean, I'm not talking. You don't need a fire. You need a fire. And we're looking around us and everybody's got their campfires going. Now, this is, we're novice at camping, so we're thinking, okay, okay, we can build a fire. We'll get our little kindling here. We'll get, you know, matches going. We'll get it going. We couldn't start a fire to save our lives. I had even brought a, a, my book bag with sermons in it. We're burning sermon notes. Not even my sermons caught on fire. I'm not sure what that says about them, but they wouldn't burn. And after a while, we're like, can we go home? Because we're wanting that warmth, that light. So we're going to our neighbors, could you please give us some fire? You know what? When you get down to it, that's what we're longing for. We're in this world shivering and we're cold and we're wondering, where is the warmth? And all around us, we're searching for that in relationships that are not pleasing to God. We think that money will warm us up. Money will not warm the deepest needs of our heart. But here he is saying, the light of God will fill things completely. That longing for warmth and light are made in God's glory and it's accessible forever. And that's why we will worship him. Verses 3 and 4 end with this point. The glories of the garden call for the servants of God to worship Him. Worship is attributing to God His worth. The word here for worship is literally the word serve. And notice it almost makes a, it makes a double emphasis. His servants will serve Him. Now notice who this worship, who does this worship. It is the servants of God. Servants is the primary description of the people of God throughout Revelation. The book is given in chapter 1 to his servants. The servants of God are sealed. That is, they are identified and kept secured. The servants of God are rewarded. The servants of God are called to praise God. And servant is really a very generous translation. Literally, it's slave. It's this interesting mixture. We are slaves who are children. We are servants who are saints. We are do his bidding while abiding in him. So to me, this gives kind of a measuring stick to say, okay, where's my walk with God? Do I see myself as his servant? Do I see myself as one that seeks to do his will? Because if I say with my mouth, I'm a servant of the Most High God through Jesus Christ, and then I live my life how I want to live it, something doesn't jive. If I say I'm a servant of God dedicated to do His will and I'm not seeking that will and I'm doing what I want all the time with no repentance, something doesn't jive. You see, those who profess faith in Jesus 
will be marked by servant attitudes that will seek to do His will. And that's why they will serve Him through ever. You see, as we gather to worship here, just as we are ambassadors for the kingdom as we go out into the world around us, this place is to also be an embassy. So that as we worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we open the Word, those who come get a taste of what it will be like when His servants worship Him and reign with Him forever and ever and ever. Now, we can't sustain that here. We're physically not able. But that should not stop us from saying, Lord, as we gather to worship, let it be a taste of the glories that await. Because our belief in the glories that await will define how we experience life now. One of the challenges, one of the many challenges of preaching through Revelation is obviously the symbolism. But it's also trying to find words to convey how wonderful something is. Our language doesn't do it justice. Certainly not in my limited abilities could I do justice to what awaits. There are two men who I want to... I just want to share two passages that they wrote about what awaits. These are two men that I feel are literary giants from the 20th century. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. C.S. Lewis is best known for his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's actually the first book of a seven-part series that tells about Narnia and represents Jesus Christ as the lion Aslan. The final book is called The Last Battle in which the enemies of Narnia are finally defeated by Aslan. The book ends with this paragraph. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the chapter before. I love that image. This world around us is just the title page. J.R.R. Tolkien, in his final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the book called Return of the King tells of the moment when Frodo, the main character, joins his uncle Bilbo and Gandalf and elves on a ship to go to the Grey Havens. It's clear that the Grey Havens represent eternity where they will live at peace. He describes it like this. The ship went out into the high sea and passed on into the west until at last on a night of rain Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. The gray rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back. And he beheld white shores beyond them a far green country 
under a swift sunrise. That doesn't sound so bad at all, does it? That's the glories of the garden. Church, let us live as people who are defined by our hope in what God is doing. Would you bow with me in prayer?